Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is an RNZ podcast. He talked about just having sackfuls of money and, and he didn't know what to do with them. He'd stash them in his car, panels in his car, he'd, he'd leave them out in the, in the garden. You know, he just said it was too much money. He didn't, just didn't know what to do. Kia ora, I'm Jesse Mulligan. I'm host of the Daily Afternoons program on RNZ National. And you're listening to Crimes NZ. This is a series where I talk to people who are connected in some way or other with serious crimes that have happened here in New Zealand. In this episode, I speak to journalist David Lomas, and we're talking about Mr. Asia. Now, David has been covering this drug kingpin's crimes throughout his career. In 1978, um, no, 79, I think it was, the Auckland Star sort of broke the story about the Mr. Asia drug ring. You know, Josh Easby, Sue McPherson and Murray Williams had done a lot of research and and came up, and it was sort of a big breaking story because all of a sudden bodies were being found in, in Australia. But, you know, the Mr. Asia ring has actually been going oh, six years by then. Mm-hmm. Did they immediately use that name, Mr. Asia, that catchy name? No, it came up a bit later. Oh, actually, they might have, actually. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I forget when things happened. Yes, I think somebody did uh, dub, dub... They called him Marty Johnson, who was then seen as the leader of the group. Mm. They, because they couldn't name him, because he was uh, still out right. there. They, they dubbed him Mr. Asia. Mm. Yeah. And I imagine it would have spooked a few people in New Zealand. The fact that this was going on on our shores. Well, the thing then was that it had actually left our shores by the time it all came came to a head. I mean, uh, Clark and um, Marty Johnson had been sort of operating for about six years. Uh, Johnson had started. He was a, a sort of um, uh, menswear clothing salesman down in Queen Street, but he, he sort of hooked up with an Asian seaman uh, who was nicknamed Jack Chu. Mm-hmm. And Jack Chu used to bring uh, Buddha sticks in and he'd throw them off, off the boats as they came in through into Auckland and Johnson would go out and pick them up and, and distribute them. What are Buddha sticks? Well, they're marijuana sort of wrapped up in, in little sticks, yeah, okay. yeah. And, you know, you could pick them up in Asia in those days for about 10 cents, but in Auckland they were getting about $10. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was big money to be made. And what happened is uh, Johnson and, and his, another mate of his, Andy Marr, who was a Scotsman who was working in menswear too, they sort of got together and started this. And and a bunch of old crims, out of, mainly who had met each other in Weetako Prison down in Wellington, sort of uh, hooked in on this. And, and um, one of them was a chap called uh, Terry Clark. And he started sort of selling drugs, you know, which um, Johnson brought in. And uh, then he sort of, 
he had great ambitions and he and, and a bunch of criminals sort of all came in together and they sort of um, took over almost from, from Johnson. Johnson was still there, but, you know, and uh, it just spiralled and, uh, and went on, as I say, for six or seven years until all, all the murders started. So who was Terry Clark? Terry Clark was a, a small-time crim. He had done some burglaries, car conversions. He, uh, he had tried to uh, blow up a safe in Waipawa, the local TAB, and almost blew himself up. Um, he was inside, and um, he sort of met a whole lot of guys uh, in there. And, and as I say, when he came out, he, he hooked up with um, with Johnston and uh, Mr Asia, and um, off it went. Clark was, you know, he was, what, 31 then? Johnston... Johnston was uh, 22, I think, when they met up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you ever meet any of these characters? I never actually met um, Clark, but I almost met him one time. I mean, he had been um, convicted, sorry, charged in Wellington with... Um, I was based in Wellington at this time, of course. Uh, he was charged with um, importing heroin, and, and he had disappeared on bail to Australia for a few a few years and was mm-hmm. caught. And uh, he he did... The trial happened in Wellington. Uh, Peter Williams got him off. Um, Peter Williams and his associate, Karen Sowich, got him off. And um, that night they were celebrating in the uh, Shaw Savile Hotel on Kemp Street in Colburnie. And I was, um, the, my, our court reporter on the Dominion had covered the case, but I was sent out to try and catch the celebration. So I, I knocked on the door and, and there were all these people who unbeknownst to me, we're going to go on and become quite famous as, as our sort of most notorious criminals. So, well, Were they keen for a sit-down interview? <laughs> Sorry, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> was it a sophisticated operation? No, it was more, more a stumbling, you know, sort of, um, you know, we'll do it, and, and they just did it. I mean, the start... Johnston had imported with the Thai Buddhistics, and then in about 1976, after been going a couple of years, he took his father's boat to, or he got some people to take his father's boat, the Brigadoon, to Thailand, and they got 44,000, I think it was, Buddhistics. And I've got 450,000 here. Oh, well, it might be that. Sorry, I might mean. Yeah. Well, if you use your notes, I should say that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but well, mind me. Anyway, they, they stumbled and bumbled their way. They got arrested for shoplifting in New Mere. They, they um, caught malaria. They, <laughs> they went ashore in Indonesia, tried to get some help and got arrested for not having visas. The boat broke down. They got towed. And the New Zealand police at that stage had a rough idea of what, what they were up to, but they lost track of the boat. And um, that came ashore up in, uh, up in Northland. They unloaded all the Buddhistics. Clark and Johnston made about $3 million back in those days, which was an absolute fortune. And, and that set up what we sort of now know as the Mr. Asia of drug ring because um, Clark had a lot of money. He went to Australia. He set up there. Johnston decided that he had become a, an importer. He moved to Singapore and set up there. A uh, Auckland thug but, um, called Peter Fulcher took over the sort of New Zealand distribution and, and it just went global. So they headed to Australia at some point, eh? Clark did. Yeah. And he linked up over there with a, a chap called um, Robert Trimboli who um, became quite notorious. Uh, there was a, 
anti-drugs campaigner in Australia at that time, Donald Mackay, up in Griffith, and um, he disappeared, and later Trimboli was hooked up with killing him. But when Clark, through another New Zealand criminal who'd done time in Australia, Jimmy Shepard, Clark met Trimboli, and Trimboli all of a sudden wanted to... He'd, he'd been doing marijuana out of Griffith, wanted to move into heroin importing, and with Clark he found someone who could import it and, and import big loads of it. And Clark found a person who had money banking skills and also police informers, uh, lawyers who could do stuff for him, and banking systems. So it sort of uh, skyrocketed. And um, you know, over the next few years, Clark was bringing in absolute shiploads of, of um heroin into Australia. I mean, one shipment, he hired an old um, shipping boat, uh, fishing boat, the Conpera, and brought in something like um, 400 kilos of um, heroin in one, one load, and there were many loads. Mm, incredible. Um, by the way, while we've got our expert on this case in, if you've got a particular question about the Mr. Asia case that you'd like answered, you can text it through. I'm speaking with David Lomas as part of our New Zealand crime Series. Uh, you mentioned Jim Shepard. Can you tell us a bit of his story? Well, Diamond Jim Shepard, as he was sort of known, he was a, a little short chap, looked more like a um, jockey than a criminal, but he had been a um, bank robber and a, and a burglar. Um, I don't know everything about him, but uh, he got the name Diamond Jim because he wore a big diamond ring on his finger. But um, he had hooked up with, he'd done time in Australia and hooked up with Trimboli, and he was the one who, as I say, connected Clark with the Australian, um, uh, you know, organised crime. Mm -hmm. And um, he sort of stayed with the group and was basically the money man in a lot of ways and also sort of Clark's number two. At some point he expressed some regret about the effects that this heroin had had on people. Uh, yes, quite a few of them did in the end. I mean, you know, over the years I've spoken to quite a few of them. Um, Diamond Jim said, you know, when he went to prison again, I think in about mid-80s, he uh, came across a whole lot of people and he thought, my goodness, you know, I've been responsible for creating this sort of mess. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, almost every name in this story has uh, an interesting background. Do, do I have this right? You actually did meet Peter Fulcher. Oh, Peter Fulcher, I, I got to know quite well. Um, after the story had sort of died down, I always kept an interest in it. And, I, and um, I got hold of Fulcher one day. He was doing time down in Rangapo Prison. I'd, I'd sat in on his trial in Auckland where one of the uh, couriers in the Mr. Asia thing had um, a woman called Elson Dine who had been Clark's girlfriend at one stage was giving evidence as a uh, secret witness, you mm. know, and had immunity. And anyway, I'd sat in there and watched that. Him, uh, Fulcher and a guy called Donnelly were both being done. Anyway, I contacted him in um, Rangapo Prison, and uh, he said, oh, yeah, come talk. So I went down and sat with him there and had a long chat. I went down a couple of times. And then when he started getting out on leave, he, he would give me a call and we'd have a coffee. And um, so over the years, I sort of dealt with him quite a bit. He was a, an interesting character. I mean, he told me that, you know, um, there was about eight deaths in, in the Mr. Asia thing. And he said that, you know, given 
given their occupation, you could say they all died of natural causes. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, he know, told you for some pretty amazing stories from those times. I mean, big loads of money, right? Oh, he, he talked about just having sackfuls of money and, and he didn't know what to do with them. He'd stash them in his car, panels in his car. He'd, he'd leave them out in the, in the garden, you know, dig, dig up somewhere there. He just said it was too much money. He didn't, just didn't know what to do. Yeah. Is he still around? No, Peter, I, I spoke to him, oh, it must have been, I think, about five years ago. It, it might have even been a little bit longer. He, he died, he died of emphysema. And I rang him up uh, just before he died, and he sort of uh, gave a sort of deathbed interview to me and, uh, you know, admitted most of the things which happened and, and talked about. He said he, he never actually killed anyone himself, but he was a party to or knew of. Mm. And, uh, you know, like... Uh, Clark's first wife, uh, second wife, sorry, uh, Norma Fleet, who was a drug addict, she had, she died of an overdose, and everyone suspected she had been murdered. and And uh, Peter said, "Well, you know," I asked him directly, "Was she murdered?" And he says, "No comment. I know a lot about it. I'll pass on answering that one. But put it this way, I was one of the first people to know she had died, mm. and I was the one who rang Terry to." to tell him that she'd died. And Terry just said, well, that's great news. So, yeah. um, Davo says, ah, yes, I remember Buddhist sticks from back in the day. They had a thin skewer of bamboo up the middle and were bound with a thin string of bamboo binding the outside. And I had an egg cup stuffed full of the skewers, rather strong cannabis compared to the stuff that they were uh, growing in New Zealand. Uh, thanks, Dave. Nice to hear from you. Um, somebody else wants to know uh, about the lawyer you mentioned, Karen Sowich, who is still around. Um, well, Karen met Peter um, Terry Clark when she was working as an associate for Peter Williams in the 1978 trial in Wellington when Clark, who had absconded from 1975, was brought back to New Zealand, was charged with importing heroin. Peter Williams got him off, or he got off because he was innocent, whatever way you like to look at it. Um, Karen was the associate. She uh, sort of fell for Terry Clark and um, sort of started going out with him and um, travelled with him. And, and when Clark was finally arrested in October 1979, I think it was, after the death, after he ordered the murder of Marty Johnson... Uh, Sowich was with him at that stage. She was, uh, when the police burst into the house, uh, I, I spoke to a policeman in England, Ernie, Ernie Pemberton, who arrested uh, Clark and Sowich at the time. She said they were both in, in bed together, you know, when, when they burst in. Sowich jumped up, stark naked, and started yelling at the police. Uh, Clark, he said, lay in the bed and was very nonchalant about it. Uh-huh. Some of this is ringing a bell, and I think it's because I watched the TV series Underbelly. Did you see that take on the Mr. Asia story? Yes, I, I did, and I actually did a, a bit of a review of it at the time. Yeah. So sort of a person who had done a bit of, on the stuff. And, right. And, you know, <laughs> actually, there's a classic question. Uh, Justice Stewart, who had done the Royal Commission of Inquiry on it, I rang him up and I says... Um, uh, what do you think of it, uh, Judge? And he said, well, it's fiction, but it's mainly true. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great, love it. I'm speaking with David Lomas as part of our New Zealand crime series. Rachel, do you have a song here? We found some, a bit of an appropriate song, yeah. Um, is it, are we going to do the dragon one? Sure. Yeah. Okay, here it comes. Let's take a break. National, any fool can tell you by the band Dragon. David Lomas is in recalling the uh, the Mr. Asia case in New Zealand in the uh, late seventies. Connection, a bit of a connection between that band Dragon and the case. 
Yes, Dragon were. I went over to Australia in early 1979 to work with the um, Daily Telegraph over in Sydney. We're doing their coverage along with the coverage for the Dominion. And one of the names which came up very prominently back then was uh, Dragon. A lot of them were sort of seen as being linked in with um, the drug scene and the Mr. Asia group. And in fact, one of the um, victims of the Mr. Asia murders or Terry Clark's murders was um, a guy called Greg Ollard, who who was closely linked to Dragon. Mm. And um, Ollard was um, sort of seen, he was a dealer and he was seen as a bit of a junkie and he and his partner, Julie Thielman, were both killed actually by Clark. I mean, he he thought... um, Ollard was trying to rip him off out of some money, as I understand it, and took Ollard out to the Kooring Guy um, Forest Park out of Sydney one day on the, on, under the pretense of going to collect some drugs and, and shot him in the back of the head. And then the next day he went back and um, Julie Tillman was worried about him and um, anyway he said, well, I think I know where he is. And, and <laughs> Julie was actually cooking uh, some roast pork apparently that day and and um, so Clark sat round while, while she cooked and he said, come on, let's go. We'll go and see if we can find your boyfriend, Greg. And um, they went out and uh, Clark had with him another chap from the syndicate who's um, sort of got uh, name suppression on this part. Anyway, they took, him, took Julie out. Clark walked up and shot her in the back of the head a couple of times. And, um, and the other associate who, had, who was also a bit of a drug addict was forced by Clark to sort of dig a grave, put Tillman in, then forced to dig up the grave of Ollard and um, try and chop his head off and, and smash his teeth so if he was ever found that they wouldn't identify him. And this was all told to me by, by a chap called Carl Mengler, who was the policeman who, who um, inquired into all this. And uh, Mengler says that Clark then went back to um, Tillman's house and, and ate the roast pork, but... So I don't know if that's all true or not, but that's what the police told me. Sounds pretty evil. <laughs> Apparently he was. He was. Um, he was. Clark was quite a a ladies' man. I mean, people talk about him. He had a lot of charm and and sophistication in some ways. And and uh, according to Peter Fulcher, I mean, his abiding interest in life was women. You know, he wanted money and women and. Um, and uh, that was what he, he worked for. How many other murders were there? Well, sort of officially, they, they sort of link him to six, but it, 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 uh, according to Fulcher, um, it's probably eight. And that's... Um, so he killed three... Well, he ordered the death of two people. That was uh, two addicts who had been arrested with him in, in Brisbane in 1975 or 76 and they were um, talking to police and Clark managed to buy the tapes of those interviews from the police uh, through his connections from Trimboli. He spent about 100000 or something buying those and, and in those he heard that the Wilsons were talking about him so he put a hit, hit on them and, and um, a guy called Basley killed them and he was the guy who linking everything sort of links around in circles he was the guy who Trimboli had allegedly used to kill Donald Mackay a few years earlier so 
And um, so that's those few murders. And then uh, Clark himself called another guy, um, Pommy Harry Lewis, who had been arrested for, uh, he was one of the dealers and or traffickers, I, I get confused which one, but he'd been arrested. Clark thought he was about to talk. Clark posted his bail, which was $5,000, and then um, when he was driving back with him, shot him and, and left him in, in the bush again. How do you get to, in a civilised country, just murder people and then carry on with your everyday life? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, one of the big things that came out of the Mr Asia was really how how unprepared New Zealand and, and to an extent, Australian police were for this sort of level of, of straight brutality and, and, um, and massive importation. I mean, the Mr Asia ring was... In its own way, one of one of the forerunners of the big cartels from Mexico and all that. I mean, these guys just did it, and New Zealand police were so underprepared that you know they had an idea things were going on, and when they went to um, police headquarters or bullshit houses, as the policemen used to call it, um, to ask for money to to start investigating, they knew, for instance, there was a connection to Perth with boats travelling there. Mm. They were told no, they couldn't go to Perth, and um, so police back then um, leaked the first details of the group to the Auckland Star, and that's where the Auckland Star started breaking the story. And then it was around that time the murders started happening, and it just skyrocketed. But you know, the in Australia, for instance, how did Clark get away with it? He was so brutal that he wanted people to know that he was killing people. Um, Peter Fulcher in New Zealand said, you know, if you want to kill people, they're, they're all on, on um, drugs anyway. Yeah, give them overdoses and nobody will know. And Clark said, no, I want it as a warning. And so when he killed, he made sure that people in his group knew that those people had been disposed of because he wanted them gone and it was a warning to them. And equally in Australia with the Wilsons, because Clark had found out that they were um, talking, and same with um, Lewis beforehand, the people within the drug syndicate were too scared to talk to the police because they, they knew Clark had insides into, into the police force mm. and was getting the information back. And on top of it, he, he had good lawyers and, and uh, people who were hiding the money, so everything, you know, nobody really connected him to anything. How did it all end? It ended with uh, Clark had tried to expand into England. He had moved to England. Um, had set up a, a great big drug deal with, um, with Johnson, who was based in Singapore. Johnson was meant to buy a massive load of drugs which were to be shipped to England where Clark had linked up with um, a bunch of local crims. Johnson got totally ripped off. He went into a meeting in, in some forest in, in Thailand, um, gave over a lot of money and got a whole lot of um, flour or something like that in, in return. Uh, Johnson was called to England. Clark got... Johnson's best friend, Andy Ma, the one who had started the business with him, told Ma that you either kill Johnson or I'll kill you. And um, so Ma met Johnson up in uh, the border of Scotland and England and shot Johnson in the back of the head. And um, 
and then with a, another mate, of a, a friend of his from Scotland, James Smith, they, they hacked the body up, tried to smash the face beyond recognition, cut the hands off, and threw the body into the Eccleston Quarry in, uh, near Chorley, I think it is, up in northern England. And, um, and they would have got away with it all, except they threw it and it landed on a ledge. And if they'd thrown it another metre or so away, it would have fallen to the bottom and probably never been found. But within a, within a week or so, it, the body was found, identified, and Clark linked to it all. And um, so Clark was arrested, charged in England. It was the um, highest security trial in England to that date and went for about three months and Clark was convicted and... Um, and so was um, an, uh, one of his New Zealand offsiders, um, whose name Errol Hinksman. Um, they were both convicted. Clark of uh, Clark of um, conspiracy. Con yeah, one of those things, yes. Mm. And Hinksman about drugs, and of course Maher and, and Smith were also convicted. Uh, and Clark was sent to Parkhurst Prison, and um, and he died there, but. According to Justice Stewart, the man who did the Royal Commission looking into it all, um, Clark was probably murdered by um, someone within the prison because he was uh, narking on people there and um, uh, the IRA were alleged to have done that. Wow. And you have been involved in this case for over 30 years. No, over 40 years. Yes, my goodness. <laughs> Any questions still unanswered? Oh, there's a couple. I mean, the money. Uh, the, the, there was so much money, and it's, it sort of evaporated, and you, you don't know where it's gone. I mean, Clark, you know, there was obvious things like Clark had the house up in, in Russell, and there was some property in Fiji which was all sort of discovered, but it sort of vanished. And, um, you know, Tromboli being the bank, bank man, and obviously he would have dealt with some of it. So where did the money go? That would be fascinating to find out. But the one that's always most intrigued me is Alison Dine, who was one of Clark's main couriers, one of the women who used to carry drugs in her suitcase, and went on to become his, his lover. Um, she disappeared. Uh, no. She, she has disappeared. She gave evidence, as I said earlier, against uh, Fulcher and, and other things. She got um, immunity from prosecution and guaranteed a um, witness... Um, protection. Witness protection and change of identity. And as I understand, she, she settled in England. She married. Um, she had some sort of um, face uh, changing. You know, wow. Wow. Um, and uh, has never been seen since. I mean, her family probably know where she is, but they obviously don't talk. But she would have an amazing story because of all the main players, uh, her and, and Jimmy Shepherd are the, are the two left standing. You've been listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. You can find more episodes of this series on the RNZ podcast page or on Apple or Spotify or wherever you catch your favourite podcasts. And if you like this series, you might also like the award-winning RNZ podcast series, White Silence. You can find that one on the RNZ podcast page, along with all our other great podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.